1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and talk about the rapture. Are you ready to talk about the rapture? Yes. All right, will you stand with me as we look at, read from the message translation of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 13 through 18. It reads like this. Regarding the question, friends, that has come up about what happens to those already dead and buried as we have experienced so many in this year 2014 already, so many losses of life. So many of you, how many of you are touched by a loss of life this year already? Just amazing how many deaths have come just in this these short weeks alone. So regarding the question of what comes up about what happens to those already dead and buried, we don't want you in the dark any longer. First off, you must not carry on over them like people who have nothing to look forward to. So it isn't that we get all worked up over their loss. Uh, it's for ourselves that we have grief and sorrow, like people who have nothing to look forward to, as if the grave were the last word. Since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to life those who died in Jesus. And then this, we can tell you with complete confidence, we have the master's word on it, that when the master comes again to get us, those of us who are still alive will not get a jump on the dead and leave them behind. In actual fact, they'll be ahead of us. The master himself will give the command, archangel thunder, God's trumpet blast, He'll come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise. They'll go first. Then the rest of us who are still alive at the time will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the master. Oh, we'll be walking on air. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another with these words. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithful word to us, your promises, and your blessings, your great love for us. May it minister to us this morning as we look at your word and examine exactly what you've told us about what we can expect in the days ahead. We ask your blessing and favor in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to curse to me, it's been a long time since I think I've preached on the rapture. It's one of those topics that I think everybody, anybody here that's never... Anybody that doesn't even know what that means, the rapture, when we, when we talk about the rapture that you don't know, I think much of the world knows what Christians are talking about when they, if they mention the word rapture. Uh, so what is the rapture? Do you know what the rapture is? Do you know what the Bible says about it? And do you know when it's going to happen? How much of uh, what we know about the rapture, what it's called the rapture of the church, is there really a good basis for it? Is it in the Bible, or is it just wishful thinking? There are those Christians who say the word rapture is not in the Bible. True statement. The word rapture is not in the Bible, not in the English Bible. It is found in the Latin Bible in this very passage, uh, verse 7, where it says caught up, and that word in Latin uh, is the derivative of our word rapture, to be caught away. And uh, so the church has coined that phrase and called it the rapture of the church, even though the English translation uses a word uh, to say caught up 
or the appearance of the Lord or whatever. Uh, so, no, the word rapture is not in the English Bible. This is true. Uh, the word rapture from the dictionary uh, began to be used around 1629, and it describes a state or experience of being carried away by overwhelming emotion. Well, okay, so there are emotional moments of life that uh, would be mm, just super joyful. I don't, you know, what, how would you say? Rapture. Well, it would just be a moment that touched your life in such a unique and special way that uh, it was so joyful, so blessed. You would, you would call it rapture. It could be a mystical experience in which the spirit is exalted to a knowledge of divine things, more of an occultic type of a description, or an expression or a manifestation of ecstasy or passion, you know, down in the more worldly level of things. So rapture would be a state or experience of being carried away by an overwhelming emotion, carried away, carried away by an overwhelming emotion. Well, are we going to be carried away by an overwhelming emotion? Some people think that that's exactly what we're doing. We're getting very emotional in the process of talking about the rapture. Our text this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul writes to encourage uh, and comfort the church. So look at it again. This is the English Standard Version. Uh, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We, we use this at every funeral service as a point of comfort and encouragement of what the word says about those that have died. Uh, and if you've been to a funeral service recently, I, I would just imagine that this exact verse was used in that time as a word of comfort and encouragement. What happens to those that die? Well, the Bible says that they're asleep. Uh, we're going to use a scripture here later on where Paul says, I was caught up, same word, I was caught up into the third heaven. And he says, was I in the body or in the spirit? I don't know. Was I in the body or was I in the spirit? I don't know. Uh, which, as I read it, went, wow. Does it make any difference whether I'm in my body or in my spirit? Do I know the difference? I mean, many of these uh, near-death experiences, most near-death experiences, uh, include some form that they were able to look down in the ER and see the doctors working on their body and they were up in the corner of the room somehow witnessing all of this uh, in a dreamlike state or in a spirit, you know, whatever. Uh, I guess pretty technical in the spirit and the body. But the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the spirit of our loved ones is present Right now, with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. The Bible describes them as being before the altar in heaven and ministering and, and calling out to God and praying even for us, that, that, that they pray for us. Uh, and so we have these pictures from Scripture 
that describe that these people are in, in the presence of God. Their bodies are still in the grave. And so at the resurrection and the rapture, their body will be rejoined with their spirit. They say, is that a really bad thing? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. So uh, those who are asleep, don't grieve about them like we don't have any hope. When Jesus died, you can be sure that the the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the promise that you will be resurrected also. Okay? Well then, what happens to those who are still alive when uh, Jesus returns? We use these verses at funerals. Uh, He goes on to say this, We declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, those that are still alive when the Lord returns, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we're not going to go to heaven and leave them behind. Clearly says, in fact, uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So before, if you're here this afternoon when the rapture takes place, or whenever the rapture takes place, uh, you won't leave planet Earth before your loved ones do. Your loved ones will be up and out of the grave before that happens. You say, has that ever happened before? Yes, it did. When? Yes, when Jesus rose from the when Jesus rose from the tomb, the Bible says there were many others that rose from the tomb also, went into the city, visited with their loved ones ministered to them at that same time. Read it. Go back and read the story of Jesus' resurrection. It says that many others rose up from the grave. What happened to them? We don't know. Uh, Were they just there for a day or two? Did they die again? I don't think so because uh, it's appointed unto man once to die. So uh, interesting thoughts. You just begin to say, well, wait a minute. Everything isn't as cut and dried as we, we tend to believe. So uh, I I wanted to point out that there were three things going on here. It says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. So number one thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to descend from heaven and there will be a shout that comes from Jesus. With the voice of an archangel, there will be another cry from an archangel. And thirdly, there will be the sound of a trumpet. So there will be three signals, I guess, from heaven. The cry of Jesus, the cry of the archangel, and the blast of the trumpet that will signal, this is it. This this is the time. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always, always be with the Lord. Uh, So there are three things that announce the coming, and notice again that there are three actions that take place at the resurrection. We are caught up, we meet up, and we stay up. Can you live with that? We, we, we are caught up, we meet up, and we stay up. No, we're in the presence of the Lord always, thereafter, period. Done deal. Uh, so that's the promise of the Lord. And finally, these promises are intended to comfort us. 
not intended to cause us confusion, not intended to cause us speculation or concern or worry or argument, but they're there to give us comfort. This is the comfort of the Lord. This is what I promise I'm going to do for you. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And they are indeed really comforting words to know that the dead in Christ will rise from their graves, that will be caught up also, and we'll meet them and the Lord Jesus in the air, and then we'll always be with the Lord. So, while the word rapture is not used, excuse me, uh, in our Bible, the word is used here uh, is, is a very interesting word, that word caught up. The word caught up in the Greek is harpazo, harpazo. Uh, and it's used to describe the Holy Spirit's work in uh, Acts chapter 8, uh, verse 39. When Philip, remember when Philip went down the road to uh, meet the Ethiopian uh, uh, that was headed back to Queen Candace's court, and Philip went down, the Holy Spirit led him to go down and run alongside the chariot and minister to him and so forth. And uh, Acts uh, 8.39 says, and when they came up out of the water, he baptized this Ethiopian. Uh, he says, when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord, Harpazo, the spirit of the Lord carried away Philip. So here's Philip having a water baptism service with this Ethiopian, and all of a sudden, Philip is gone. The eunuch saw him no more. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Well, hey, I don't know what just happened, but boy, this is good, you know. And Philip's gone. But Philip found himself at Astos. As he passed through, he preached the gospel in all the towns, and he came to Caesarea. Same word, Arpazzo. He was caught up. Well, then what does that, when the Lord is going to, we're going to be caught up with the Lord, what does that mean? Something very similar to this. There's another passage in Acts later on. Let me see if I have it here somewhere. Lost my space. Oh, in 2 Corinthians 12.2, Paul describes being caught up into the third heaven. I mentioned that earlier, that, that Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven, whether in my body or just in the spirit, I don't know. I'm not sure. So apparently being in the spirit is so natural to being in the body that Paul says, I can't tell you what, which was which. Uh, but it says he was caught up into the third heaven. Well, the third heaven is, the, is where God lives. The third heaven. There's heaven, which is the airspace around this globe. And then there's heaven, which is the celestial bodies that we can see. And then there's the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God himself. And Paul says he was caught up to the third heaven, up into God's prison, caught up, harpazo. All right? Uh, so it suggests a sudden, irresistible force at work. I mean, can you imagine hanging on, going, no, 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 no. sudden irresistible force that uh, carries us away. I think the word rapture fits pretty well uh, to that. If that's what we're describing, then the word rapture 
pretty well applies to that thinking and process, and that's why the word is stuck over the years. Now, there are those who discount the rapture teaching. I, that's, that's what I want to make clear to you. And, and they're beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, we have no argument with them other than this is the way we see it, and that's the way they see it. Okay, uh, but why, why do we see it the way we see it, or why do I see it the way I see it? You can see it whatever way you'd like. That's fine by me. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to make heaven your home or you're not going to make heaven your home. The teaching of the rapture is not a you know, salvation homework uh, kind of question that uh, if you don't believe it this way, you're not going to make it. It's just our understanding of what Scripture says. And so there are those uh, that would discount the rapture, but at the same time, they would agree that we are indeed going to be caught up and we are going to meet Jesus and we are going to be with him forever. They don't, that's not even in question. That's not in play at all. It's only the question of the timing of that event. When does that happen? Well, uh, God doesn't give us clear statements. Uh, they would say that teaching the rapture, or talking about the rapture is escapism. That we're just trying to get out of here. We're just trying to leave the rest of the world, go to hell, you know, and get away from them all. And that those that talk about the rapture all the time or are focused on the rapture are simply wanting to escape and get away. Well, there are many verses in the Bible that talk about escaping the wrath to come. You know, that we ought to escape the wrath to come. That we need to stay diligent in order to escape the wrath to come. Uh, those that uh, would discount the rapture would say, that means that we just keep dodging the CIA and the NSA and the whoever the bad guys are, Unipol or whatever it is in the one world government, you know, that we keep dodging them and we stay below the radar and, and we manage to survive in that wicked and chaotic world. And that's something well, and I know that God is certainly able to keep us right through the middle of the tribulation without spot or blemish. But I read other scriptures that say, well, not so fast here. I don't think we're going to be here at all. Uh, as I said, there are three points of view or three options, I guess, about the timing. One is that the rapture takes place before the great tribulation, which is that seven-year period of time when the world goes into total chaos, Antichrist appears, rules the world as a dictator, and uh, makes a peace treaty with Israel. Hey, have you noticed that within the next two weeks, within the next two weeks, the United States says Israel either will sign a treaty or we will boycott them. The, John Kerry says either Israel will sign this treaty that we're preparing or we will boycott them. Now, didn't we just let up on a boycott with Iran? Prematurely, in my opinion. Uh, and now we're going to boycott Israel if they don't do what we tell them to. Listen, every time we mess with Israel, God slaps us. He slaps us big time. And I don't even have to be a prophet to tell you that if that treaty goes forward, the United States will be shaken to its very core. Whether it's a massive earthquake or a hurricane or flooding or whatever it might be, uh, there will be repercussions. And uh, you write that down if you like and, and then bring it back to me six months from now. I would love to be able to tell you, oh, man, I was wrong about that. That you, 
okay? I, I wish I could. It's not the timing that's in question. I mean, it is the timing that's in question. Whether the, the rapture, the, the church gets taken out of the world before the tribulation begins and all this takes place down here seven years, is it the, the kickoff of the tribulation? Is it the beginning of the, what, what is the kickoff of the tribulation? What begins the tribulation is the treaty with Israel. The Bible is very specific about that. The seven-year period begins with Israel signing a treaty against or with the other nations of the world. And as I said, John Kerry is pushing very hard to see that that happens in the next two weeks. Has nothing to do with why I'm preaching on this this morning. <laughs> oh, yeah. yes, it does. It, it probably encouraged me in that direction. The other option, another option would be that the church is taken out mid-trib because the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the world just gets nastier and nastier and nastier. And in the, the middle of the tribulation, the three and a half year period, in fact, the Bible is so very specific that it says it's uh, exactly however many months, I, I should have had the numbers written down, uh, exactly how many months, exactly how many days. And then at that point, the treaty is broken. The Antichrist says no more deal for Israel. Uh, Israel, it's taken over. The temple is, uh, is desecrated. And Antichrist sets himself up as God at the midpoint of the tribulation. So there are those that would say, well, I believe the rapture is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. We go through the easy part of the tribulation, and then we get out of here in the middle of the tribulation. And finally, there are those that are post-trib, meaning they believe that the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation. When Jesus Christ comes back to earth, they would say that we and those dead in Christ rise from the grave, go to meet him in the air. On his way, he comes back as we come with him. And we do come with him when he comes back to the Mount of Olives. His feet touch down on planet Earth, and he rules and reigns thereafter. And so they would say, the post-tribbers would say, well, then it happens all at the same time at the end of this period. Okay. Uh, and this passage we've studied in Thessalonians doesn't give us much indication of when this will happen. But we ended with the last verse of chapter 4, the first verse of chapter 5. Oh, well, there, I'm sorry, I, I didn't flash up my notes. Uh, there, there are the three points of view or three options. It's before the Great Tribulation, in the middle of the Great Tribulation at the three-and-a-half-year point, or at the end of the Great Tribulation, which is mid-trib or pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Uh, you know, just kind of get the lingo there and have spiritual speak, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. All right? Uh, and while it doesn't give us much, look at the next verse, the one that follows, chapter 4. Then we go to chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So it isn't going to, we don't have a day. We, we're not going to get a notice. We're, we're not going to be able to put it on the calendar and say it's going to happen on Friday the 13th or any of those things. Uh, it's just the day of the Lord is coming. But if you skip down to the ninth verse in that same chapter, just skip down to verse 9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the whole point of the tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out upon this wicked world. That's the entire purpose of the tribulation, that the wrath of God is being poured out on this wicked world. So verse 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath. I think that's a pretty clear statement. We're not here when that happens. If God is pouring out wrath, in fact, when you look at Revelation 16.1, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. We're not destined for the wrath of God. This verse would come shortly after mid-trib. So the mid-tribbers would run up to that and say, See, we get out just before that happens, just before the wrath of God starts. Uh, Okay, but the great tribulation is the outpouring of the wrath of God. Uh, We're told in Luke 21 that we should escape. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength, Luke 21, 36. Praying that you may have strength to escape. Strength to escape these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So, what's wrong with getting out of here before all this trouble starts? Are we chicken? Are we cowards? No, we're just not destined to to that that play. That's not our place. God says, come out. Get away from there. Get out of this mess. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 7, we'll read, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of Jesus Christ. As you wait for the revealing of Jesus Christ. You and I as believers have spiritual eyes so we can see Jesus. Because we have spiritual eyes. We, we see Jesus. We, we, we see Jesus at work all around us. But the world without spiritual eyes cannot see Jesus. They're blind. But this verse tells us while we're waiting, we're, we're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus so that all the world will see him. Every eye will see him. He will flash around the world. His coming will be known instantly everywhere. Every eye will see him. And that is the revealing of of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word there is parousia in Greek. Parousia. You'll also find it in Romans 8, 10, Philippians 3, 20, Hebrews 9, 28. And you can look those up and study them later if you want to jot those down a minute because it's the same word used over and over again that there is an appearing of the Lord Jesus, a parousia. Well, a parousia is, uh, describes what happened when Jesus came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. You remember this, the Palm Sunday message as Jesus and his disciples came to the crest of the Mount of Olives, Jesus riding on uh, a donkey. They're throwing palm branches in his way. The crowds are screaming and singing, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Now, the Mount of Olives is only a couple of hundred yards away from the Temple Mount itself inside the city of Jerusalem. And so it's high on a hillside here, 
Uh, it's certainly not as far as from here to uh, Sunrise Mountain. It would be much less than half of that distance. Uh, I, I don't have a number for you. But, but it's much less than half of that distance. So as the crowd comes over the hill and they're singing and they're shouting, the whole city of Jerusalem looks up and goes, what on earth is going on up there? Look at their waving palm branches. They're screaming. They're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this custom comes out of the custom of the kings of those days when they got ready to go into another city, into a territory that did not uh, recognize them as king, you didn't just walk in, knock on the door and say, hey, here I am, I'm a king of so-and-so over here. You know, well, that would be a good way to get yourself uh, thrust through with a spear or whatever. Uh, if you wanted to visit a territory, you send emissaries out in advance to say, king whatever wants to come and visit, and the reason he wants to come and visit is because he's heard such great things about the temple in Jerusalem, and he wants to witness it for himself and so forth. And uh, arrangements are made, ambassadors are sent, a party goes out and receives the king and escorts them back in. Exactly what happened when Jesus came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The crowd in the city went running out of town, running up the hill to meet Jesus. They ran to meet him and to come back with him into the city of Jerusalem. That is known as a parousia. It's a... It's a, it's a Standard protocol for somebody to come to town. When you think about it, it's still the standard protocol. If, uh, what's his name, King Jung-il, who, whoever is the head of state in Korea, North Korea, if he decides, I think I'm just going to go talk to President Obama. I think I'll just have my private jet fly me right in there. I'll just cruise up to the front door of the White House and knock on that door, you know. No, he wouldn't dare, would not think of it. If that were to happen, there have to be ambassadors and messages and discussion that go on prior to that and warnings and agreements and all of these things before a head of state comes to visit the White House. That's all arranged in advance. Why are you coming? When are you coming? What are we talking about? Why are you going to be here? And if we don't particularly like them, then we mistreat them like uh, we've done with Israel on a, on a couple of occasions to say, well, I don't have time. I've got a busy lunch schedule. And uh, so this is still done today. We use the return of Christ at the rapture of the church. It signifies not merely the momentary coming for his saints, but the present, his presence with them from that moment on until the revelation and the manifestation to the world. Uh, and so Jesus arrived with his disciples in what we would call a parousia. It was common. City officials went out to meet a coming king. They wanted to know why he was coming. They want to know if he was coming in peace or if he's coming in war. Uh, the animal he was riding on would tell them. That's why Jesus riding on a donkey was so significant. If he'd been riding on a white horse, look out. Because when you and I come back with him, he will be riding on a white horse. It's time for that air conditioner, at least up here.
so as the Lord comes back in this parousia, it's still a common practice today when you think about it. What happens when a nation decides to go to war with another nation? Do we just suddenly, boom, pop in there and just start firing away? Or do we negotiate and say, you know, get rid of those chemical weapons or we're coming after you, Syria? You, you better secure those chemical weapons and not let them fall into bad hands. And so negotiations go on and on and on and on. Have you noticed Jesus has been negotiating with this world for 2,000 years now? You know, on and on and on and on. And so you negotiate first uh, and say, uh, these conditions are unacceptable to us and we're not going to allow that to go on or whatever the condition might be, whether it's uh, you know, abusive rights and so forth. Uh, there's discussion. And if it turns out that we can't come to an agreement, that we can't uh, any longer tolerate the situation, then a notice goes out from our State Department. Attention, all citizens of the United States, now in the area of Syria or in the area of Iran or whatever country it might be, all, all citizens in the area of Iran, please leave the country. You are no longer safe. Get out of there. We cannot protect you any longer. Leave the country. And that message goes out loud and clear worldwide. Happens today, right? That's, that's the way things are done. I mean, when there was the change of the Shah of Iran, if you're old enough to remember that, uh, there were American citizens and American, uh, those that were not assist Americans per se, they were Iranians, but they had been friendly or favorable to the Americans that got left behind. When the, America, when the Americans pulled out of Iran and they were slaughtered and murdered and we had a desperate helicopter fight and helicopter battle to get the last remaining citizens out of the country. Do you remember that? I'm not making it up. And so if that's done today by uh, civil countries, that's not the word I wanted, uh, you know, civil government, if that, that's the way we treat our citizens of the United States, it's not only the United States, but any country in the world. If they're going to go to war against the United States, they would warn their citizens, hey, look out. We're about to nuke New York City, so you better get yourself out of that town. You know, they, they give a warning. And if they don't leave, and then the next thing they do is they close the embassy. And they evacuate all the embassy personnel. And after all that's taken care of, then... We're ready for war. So if that's the way we treat citizens of the United States, how do citizens of the kingdom of heaven get treated? I'd have a hard time thinking, well, you know, just leaving there, dodging bullets and, and uh, ducking and running for cover and, and trying to live hand to mouth since they're not going to take the mark of the beast. They won't be able to eat or buy or sell or any of those things, you know. Uh, just leave them there. They'll, they'll be all right. I have a hard time with that. God's word is clear. He's going to come. He's going to take us out of that mess. That's a pretty good picture of the rapture, isn't it? 
when a country starts warning its citizen, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there. It's, things are not going to go well there. I believe God is every bit as uh, gracious and kind as that. Uh, of course, those who are already dead and buried won't have much trouble during the tribulation. You know, if they're six feet under, I don't think a nuclear bomb, it may, you know, make a crater where they're at, but it isn't going to change their status before God. Uh, that, that's not going to hurt anything. So those that are already dead uh, won't have a problem. But I don't think they're going to be here either because God's going to take them, going to pull them out. John 14, one of my favorite passages. Oh, I didn't get it in there. Oh, I didn't get it in there. Excuse me. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and life. No, John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Am I lying when I say that, Jesus said? I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come back. And I'll take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So you can be a mid-tribber if you want. You can be a post-tribber if you want. But man, when the bus goes, I want to be on it. You know? And I, and I believe I have every, every confidence that what the Bible teaches is it, it happens before the wrath begins. So... Uh, actually, when I look at the world today, I think, man, the, the wrath is pretty well stirred up right now, isn't it? I mean, for many Christians around the world, here in the United States, so far, we've been, well, we're being harassed, for sure, as Christians, but we haven't been persecuted as so many around the world have. But we're being harassed with our rights and the political correctness and all of those things. And... Uh, There's a fairly clear picture of the rapture. Why do we believe in the rapture? Many scriptures that back that up. This is just a sampling of them. I probably ought to prepare a paper for you on the, on the rapture and give you a list of scriptures. I intended to do that. I just didn't get it done. The list of scriptures that, that refer to these things so that you can share that with somebody else. Say, you know, you better get yourself ready because there's a way out of this mess but you'll have to give your heart to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word that you didn't leave us in the dark. It was never your intention for us to be in the dark. It's never your intention for us to be terrified of the things to come uh, or frightened that somehow horrible situations would happen that uh, we just could not tolerate. But it is your promise that you'll be with us in every situation, whether you walk us all the way through to the post-trib day of your return here on earth or uh, we go before the tribulation begins. Lord, we want to be ready for your return. We want to be prepared. We want to keep our focus and our vision upon you, our expectation that this is any moment. This could happen at any time. So we ask your Holy Spirit to seal that to our hearts. And as we're confident in that and as we are made comfortable with that and and put our faith and trust in that and have every confidence that we'll be able to share that with others around about us that have no idea 
what this world is headed for. No idea of the wrath to come. So Lord Jesus, speak that into our hearts and let us speak that into the lives of those that we love around about us. We have a few short days, perhaps. Let us use them wisely, carefully, deliberately, we pray. Before we close, I've just given an opportunity for any that might be here and have not made a commitment of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ to do that. You don't get to be a Christian because you go to church or put money in the offering basket or anything like that. Your name is on the membership roll or any of those things count. What counts is that you have invited Jesus to come into your heart. You have said, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I receive you. I acknowledge you. And I ask for your grace and mercy. If you have not done that, if you cannot specifically recall having done that. I mean, it's amazing sometimes uh, we grow up and, and think that we're a Christian never having come to that point. If you're here this morning, I would love to pray with you and encourage you, lead you in that prayer. Are there here those here that would say, Pastor, would you pray that prayer? Because I, I want to hear it. I want to pray it. I, I want to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning. Are you here this morning need to hear that prayer, need to pray that prayer? Hallelujah. Praise God. Will you stand with me this morning? And will you pray with me as we pray with those that raise their hands? Saying, Dear Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Write my name in the book of life. Teach me your ways. I will follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's a simple prayer, but it's the most profound prayer you'll ever pray. If you prayed it for the first time or the first time in a long time, I got material that will help you come get it. I'd love to share it with you.